0: This is On the Margins, a podcast about educational equity in North Carolina. We bring the often untold stories of education in the state from margin to center. This is James E. Ford. Welcome back to our second official season of On the Margins podcast. It's an educational equity podcast focusing on stories of educational equity in North Carolina, bringing those from margin to center. And I'm so very excited to welcome our very first guest, uh, my friend, homeboy, assistant professor, race scholar, uh, Dr. Tracy Benson, uh, who swung by the studios, not really the studio, but the office here in Charlotte, North Carolina, to talk with us uh, about all things race and schooling, and to talk about his book, Unconscious Bias in Schools, a developmental approach to exploring race and racism. Tracy, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, James. I appreciate the opportunity to come here today and talk about my book, Race, Racism, Race in Charlotte, and the uh, the achievement of students of color in our country and, and in our city.
0: Yeah, man, I'm super excited to have you, too, um, just to even get our conversations recorded, uh, because it's not like we're unfamiliar with each other or these conversations don't happen uh, privately. <laughs> but to be able to do so in front of a microphone, I think is great. And to give people some insight on on some really, really cool conversation. So uh, starting off, man, I I, I know you, um, gotten to know you for the past several years now. Um, brilliant mind, uh, incredible brother. But for folks who don't know you, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey uh, to this education space. How did you get here, man? Why are you, why are you, why are you focusing on this stuff?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And one of the things, you know, when I open up talking um, and during my book talk is I talk about my uh, moment of, there's several moments of racial awakening that we have as people of color, you know, that awakening when we first learn about slavery, because everyone first learns about it at some point in time. Mm -hmm. And if you're black, you learn like, wow, that happened to my people, you know, and it's, it's that struggle very early in life in elementary school that, you know, a lot of us, May remember if we think back to, it, but it's a very painful moment, and um, I've had several of those moments in terms of recognizing what it means to be a person of color in this country. And one that I talk about is um, is a moment when I was in the fifth grade. And I had a teacher, Mr. Evans. I still remember his name. You know, we had these moments. And I was just joking around with one of my white friends in the hallway. And and mind you, I was a part of a um, an integration program. So I was raised in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the city. And they had a program called the 220 program where they would bus low-income black and brown kids out to the suburbs. So I was bused from third grade on out to the suburbs to integrate the suburban schools. And this is in the 90s. What right? suburb? we talking about like Brown Deer because, you know, I'm from the Midwest. Okay. Know? Brown Deer, right oh, north man. of Milwaukee. Oh, Lord. 45 minute ride from Milwaukee from where I lived in the morning. And so, um, one of my friends, white friends, um, I knew him very well. We were horse around in the hallway, you know, I was playing jokes on each other and, you know, we were cool. Mm-hmm. And so, after we were done playing, playing around, I started walking down the hallway to one of my class. For whatever reason, the, the, um, the teacher, I didn't even have him as a teacher, saw me as a black kid, as a troublemaker. And mm-hmm. I never caused trouble in school whatsoever. I was, you know, for my mind, I was one of the good kids. You know, I had these good mm-hmm. kids and bad kids. I was one of the good kids in my mind. Plus, my mama didn't play that. So right, we right. didn't get in trouble at school, <laughs> right? And so when I was walking back to my class, I had my art supplies in my hand in a, in a, in a two-gallon a milk jar, a milk uh, um, container that we'd cut the top out of to put our art supplies in. Yeah. And Mr. Evans walked up and wanted to punish me for a horse around the hallway. So he took my art supplies out of my hands and dumped them in the middle of the hallway. Oh, wow. And, you know, and I was just in complete shock that a teacher would do something like that, um, c- considering I never caused trouble. So um, I paused for a moment, but then bent down to pick up all my supplies. You know, we were very poor. Um, I can't be, you know, wasting stuff in the middle of this hallway, put, put stuff back in my container. I kept walking down the hallway, going to my class. You know, I wasn't going to mouth off. wasn't going to protest. I kept going. And then Mr. Evans came up <clears throat> from behind me and put his arm around me and started to explain what he, why he did what he did. And I didn't hear nothing because I'm in shock, yeah. but instinctively I pushed his arm off of me.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Um. And then he swung around with a stiff finger in my face and just growl on, scowl on his face and, and yelled, do you want to start with me? Right in my yeah. face. You know, I, I felt some spit on and the side it, of my face. how old are you at this time again? <laughs> oh, I'm in fifth grade. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, no, you know, why, why, start what? what? What do you mean? I was like, no. And then he turned and walked off. And I was just, I was in shock, utter shock for the rest of the day. I don't even remember what happened the rest of that day. But just being shocked, like, why is he treating me like one of the bad kids? Mm-hmm. Why does he treat me like one of the bad black kids? Mm-hmm. I'm one of the good black kids. And in my mind, I'd seen since the third grade, the black kids, especially the black males, being treated just like I was treated. Right. right. And my assumption, like, they were acting bad all the time. But from that moment on, I started watching the white boys because I was horse riding the hallway with my friend. And we were doing the same thing, but the white boy wasn't punished. And so then I started to notice that the teachers were, in fact, treating black and brown kids differently more harshly than the white kids for the same behaviors Mm. and that awakening came in the fifth grade wow and so from then on you know i i I worked my way through the school system my parents were both educators my mom was a, a counselor um in Milwaukee public school my father was a special ed teacher for a little while and they we'd have conversations at the house and so i knew i'd wanted to go into education to sort of deal with these issues of race and racism as a teacher, and then as an AP, and then as a principal. And when I was a principal in 2010, Mm -hmm. this was well beyond the time I was in school in the early 90s, but I saw the same behaviors from white teachers towards black kids. It's very explicit racist behaviors that were accepted, were normalized. And so in doing the sort of anti-racism work as a principal, Mm -hmm. after transitioning to my doctoral program, I knew I wanted to write about it, research about it, speak about it, and train you know, educated since most of them principals and most teachers are white to uh, um, recognize just the amount of inflicted damage through interpersonal racism and structural racism that we as educators do in schools Mm -hmm. almost on the everyday and how to mitigate that and lessen the impact on students. You know, that that really uh, resonates
0: in particular for myself because, I mean, as many of the listeners know, like I'm, you know, of course, a father of four, right? And so my oldest son is in the fifth grade right now. And so as these boys begin to mature, particularly as they get around the ages of 10 and 11, we know um, what the research says about the adultification of black boys in particular. And I think to myself that, you know, um, even then, in that moment, you were a researcher, you were beginning your research. Right. So the anecdote, as I'm sure you found um, through your doctoral program, that that story wasn't unique. Right. That that actually spells out something that we see. Uh, continually throughout the education system and across generations, so not just in a hallway in Milwaukee in the in the nineties, right, but even today we continue to see that sort of racial bias, right, play out. Um, and you seem to have a particular focus on the teachers, right? Versus some of the other players in the education space—the uh, you know the administrators, the principals, APs, dean of students. Why did you? Why did you decide to focus in on teachers in particular?
1: Well, first, the, the book is about leaders and leaders' okay. influence on teachers, okay. and so teachers are the closest thing to the students. Okay, you know, they're, they're the teachers are surrogate parents. Now, I remember being a fourth grade teacher. You know, you see these students 180 days a year for eight hours a day. You know, they're basically your, your sort of adopted children. For, for half of a year. And you often see them more than their parents do. And so just that amount of care that teachers need to show and the things that we teach them explicitly are important, but also the implicit lessons. I, I argue that, that students learn more implicitly from teachers about how teachers treat them, how they um, <clears throat> demonstrate what it's like to have integrity, how, how they demonstrate what it's like to treat people of different races in different ways, at different genders. So students learn a lot more about how, how teachers are and how they act towards them and their other uh, classmates then they learn from what they teach them. So if if you think back to any grade, so if I think back to my seventh grade teacher, um, I see his face, I forget his name, (laughs) but I remember, remember his character. If he showed care, what he meant to me, and so these are the impressions that students get and things they learn from teachers more to the implicit about how teachers treat them rather than the sort of the implicit academic. And so I focus on principals in terms of um, being able to um, influence how the racial climate is in their schools if they choose to focus on not just the academic portion and academic numbers, but they look, but look at the numbers through a racialized lens. So something that I talk about and something we talk about also in the book is that, you know, if there are racial discrepancies in outcomes, these are not normal. Mm-hmm. It's been so normalized just be- Such a good be- point. because of the language we use. We yeah. use the language achievement gap, school um, uh, to prison pipeline, students at risk. Yeah. These are all negatively laden labels that we're describing populations by their least desirable characteristic. We never really do that. You know, we know folks in our family, in our circles, and we typically don't describe them first by the least desirable characteristic. But yet we do that with students.
0: Can you say that again? Because I mean, I just, especially the part about it not being normal. I don't think that we, I don't think we recognize that. And when I say we, I'm talking the collective we, I'm talking about educators of color as well. It has been normalized for so long that we almost think that, yeah, that's not good. But yeah, that's just kind of how it is. There's not a whole lot you can do about that. Could you just reemphasize that point one more time? That this is not normal.
1: Right. I mean, and it is not normal. But we've, we, our language has been so deficit laden for so long <laughs> that we've all been indoctrinated into this way of deficit based thinking about students of color and people of color are not like you said. We're not immune we are still raised in the same racialized society as other white people right. so just because we have brown skin it's not that we are not, our skin is not impenetrable to these biases <laughs> and so something that, that i talk about in, in my talks is i place it in in, in time mm-hmm. i think we always need to place where we are right now in time and we have to remember that just last year was a 400 the year of the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah. The 400 year anniversary of the transatlantic slave trade. A lot of people people don't realize just how long slavery lasted. Yeah. From 1619 until 1865. That's 246 years. Yeah. And then after that, there was legalized segregation for another 89 years. Yeah. You go ahead and round up. Right. <laughs> may as well say 100. Right? <laughs> right. And then we count, you know, 1965 as the end of legalized subjugation. We can say 19 with the civil rights movement. We can say that. We'll yeah. Get, we'll say, so that's still, that's 346 years. Compared, and so if last year was a 400th year anniversary and 346 of those years, we were oppressing black people. Right. Right. And so if you count up to today, 2020, that's only 56 years. Right. 56 years of legalized freedom. Right. Compared to the residual of 356 years of oppression. Yeah. So we're dealing with those residuals now. And so we cannot solve racism in 56 years without intentional action. We can't just, you know, erase the boundary and expect us to start at neutral. No. For every action, there needs to be an equal and opposite reaction. Mm-hmm. And that's what everyone who does work in race, there, there simply aren't enough of us. Right. But in every single industry, there needs to be race specialists to, to provide language and action around the equal and opposite reaction to, um, to right the ship from the hundreds of years of oppression.
0: So... You know, I like that you emphasize legalized. Right. Because those those latter, you know, 50 some years, it's not as if racism hasn't still been operating. Right. Um, It just hasn't been doing so within an explicitly uh, explicit legal framework. Right. And you talked about applying a racialized lens for the way that we look at data, the way that we look at our systems. Um, What are some of the ways that racism continues to pervade the education system that you see that may not be legal but still is pervasive
1: oh there is there's so much legalized racism still within our school system You got to remember the history of our of our education system black people were never meant to be educated in this country mm-hmm. education has been historically weaponized against indigenous populations mm-hmm. it was used to assimilate to white culture we got we can't forget that it was first weaponized against the indigenous populations To to eliminate their culture, to eliminate their people. And then secondly, it was weaponized against black people. It was because it was illegal for us to learn to read. It was illegal for us to learn to learn. And so that's weaponized. You weaponize education. And so education has been historically weaponized. And the residuals are still within our curriculum. Still within the way our schools are formatted, still still um, weaponized in a way in which um, we, we operate every aspect of our schooling. It's, it's developed and built around the promotion of a, of a false meritocracy and a false system of, of, of ranking people and ranking uh, populations that all, will always advantage white people, specifically white males. Mm-hmm. And so, if we think about that in terms of the history of education, uh, we could take any aspect. So we could take school funding, which is, I mean, it, it's it's the sort of foundation of how we've you know disenfranchised poor Black and Brown population because historically we've been we've been prevented from um, as people uh, holistically accruing wealth and living in wealthy areas. And so, if we continue to fund partially schools and school districts by property value. With our history of redlining and prevention of Black and brown people from accruing wealth, and then with our um, de facto segregation, that Black schools are always going to be underfunded because our property value is not, uh, not is not as high, and we don't have the generational wealth. And uh, so, what what does that come with? Underfunded schools typically have less experienced teachers mm-hmm. because these schools are. Um, are labeled failing schools, and who wants to work in a failing school? Nobody. With historically traumatized populations, right, right. The way we don't have the funding to right the wrong, and then also with you know less experienced teacher comes higher comes higher rates of turnover because they don't have enough resources to serve the student population, and also with that comes inexperienced leaders because what experienced leader wants to be tied to a school with high teacher turnover problems and it's labeled as an F school? Yeah. And so we have this cyclical issue in our country where we tried to solve with No Child Left Behind, which was a bipartisan bill. But at the same time, it wasn't well thought out because we already knew where the failing schools were. We don't need the billion dollar testing industry to tell us where they are. Mm -hmm. You know, anyone with any sense could tell you where they are. And Instead of spending billions, billions of dollars on testing, we need to spend those billions of dollars on resources to educate these student populations. So what I hear you describing
0: is that it's a system. And so, um, what often gets lifted up in arguments that sometimes I feel are disingenuous is who's preventing these kids. It's not like somebody's preventing you from learning, right? It's like a, there's a person with a gun to your head saying "Don't learn," right? Or, or somebody standing in front of a threshold preventing Black and Brown kids from coming in, right? And what I try to communicate is that the system is a lot more—it's um, it, a lot more uh, covert than that, right? And that it's, it, it really it has a lot of uh, individual pl- players, but it's really an institutional problem at this point. right? And it can be found in, as you mentioned, in the curricular materials and the approaches. It can be found in uh, the policies and uh, the protocols and specifically the practices right? and who those are, are normed after. Um, erasing, I won't say erasing, but de-biasing uh, folks who work in that system is tremendous, tremendous work. Um, And, you know, a lot has come out and I'd say the past five years, maybe more of folks not recognizing this idea of uh, unconscious or implicit bias uh, and implicit sanctions and the research around that. And I think it has awakened people to a lot of things. But my my central uh, not argument, but um, um, sort of discomfort. With that, is it's provided language for something we didn't know about before, but also it has in many cases let people off the hook to say, oh, well, listen, I know I have biases. Everybody has biases. Yeah, that's fine. I'm glad you know you have biases. The question becomes now, what are you going to do with What are you going to do about that? And So what has been your experience when it comes to this this work specifically around unconscious bias and working with principals and, and, and leaders in education? What has been the response to this intervention?
1: Oh, thank you. For, I mean, thank you for that question because it's always, it's a work in progress. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been at this work for, I'm 41. I've been an educator since I've been 23. Right. Wow. Um, it's been a constant learning process from being a teacher to an AP, to then a principal, and then going back to school and studying. Uh, and writing about and researching so it's always a work in progress about you know where to start how to develop a language and how do I create a space where I where where we my co-author and I and myself alone when I when I do go out and speak create productive discomfort in a way that's going to move people because you have to understand the sort of the climate around education right now that it's shrouded in white fragility so Robin D'Angelo writes about this yes. and one uh, large barrier to Um, addressing that white fragility is is she has 11 different points of white fragility, but the one I find most prevalent is the, the white right to racial comfort. Mm. And so she writes about a white people in general have a very low threshold for racial discomfort because they don't typically in families don't talk about race as often as in black and Brown families. And so their racial awakening is the one that I talked about in fifth grade. Typically, you know, if they don't, if it's not purposeful, they don't come to racial awakening until they're, you know, maybe, you know, late thirties, forties, fifties, if, if ever. Right. And we realize that the discomfort that, of, uh, that we experienced at a very young age with learning about slavery, they experienced a lot later on. So their threshold for learning for, for, um, for weathering racial discomfort is very, very low Mm -hmm. that we're starting at at ground zero and then working our our way up. And so when approaching this work and talking with uh, my white brothers and sisters, that's why I I refer to them as in education, you know, we, we can't be on, we can't be on two different sides. We all have to be together is uh, approaching the work with, um, with humility and with empathy Um, but also not shying away from pushing past that, the white discomfort with, with talking about race. And so the reason why we named our book Unconscious Bias in Schools is because we want folks to pick it up you know i was just talking to a couple of <laughs> colleagues last time so now i'm gonna be real with it and i appreciate being on your show that unconscious bias is a very safe word for white people yeah right yeah. like yeah it's not my fault don't worry about it you know, it wasn't my fault i've been indoctrinated into the system and then hence i'm less responsible but no you are responsible right and also on our book is very purposeful so the names on the book also is tracy benson and sarah fireman so if you if you look on the book you don't see pictures Absolutely. Right. So if you didn't know who I was and you didn't know what the book is really about, you would think it's a book about safe, unconscious bias written by two white women. (laughs) (laughs) And that's purposeful because you want people who wouldn't normally pick up up a book called it would be called uh, Racism in Schools with a picture of a big black man on front. I argue it wouldn't sell as often as a book like this. Mm -hmm. And so we use unconscious racial bias as an entryway. But then we quickly explain in the very first chapter that this is a book about racism in schools. But we're not gonna say racism in schools because it's a it's a it's a loaded term mm-hmm. that has become it has been made taboo by white society. It has not been made taboo by black and brown society. You know, right. it's been we're, made we're comfortable taboo. talking yeah. about yeah. this, right? If, <laughs> yeah, if for
0: no other reason than by force,
1: right? Yeah, but by white society racism has been 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 uh, become a taboo word to use to describe someone, and so uh, I we have approached this work in a way where we want to enter at a level and meet people where they are and approach it in terms of explaining to particular terms uh, that we want folks to hold in tension as they make their way through the book. One sort of, uh, construct is the good racist, uh, the good non-ramp. Wow. The good non-racist, bad racist binary. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this is very important because especially in white society among good non-racists who want to be allies, who don't want to be racist, who aspire to be non-racist. Right. right? But what happens when you have this binary is that if you feel, feel that you're a good non-racist and you want to project this image, we then have to pr- protect the way in which you might be enacting or espousing racism on accident. So in multiracial settings, you'll say the right thing, you'll do the right thing, you'll nod, but you'll be closed off to learning because you don't want to expose your racism right? because you right. want to be seen as that good ally, which closes you off to learning. And then also in terms of these very same people, by seeing other people as bad racists, mm-hmm. it separates themselves from them. So I can divine the bad racists over there, the, the, the white nationalists or the KKK members, so I'm not them. I am me. So I don't, I don't want to be associated with them. I don't want to talk with them, to see them as learners. I want to see them as a bad racist. So what we, what we talk about is, is separating, uh, is getting away from this binary and thinking about people more along a racial identity development continuum. Janice Helms writes about this in a book, The Six Stages of Racial Identity Development Among People of Color and Among White People. So these folks who we might see as the bad racists are very early on in the racial identity development continuum. They're they're ignorant in terms of their role, their racialized self, and their role of promoting racism in society. Now those good, you know, the good non-racists are somewhere else on that continuum, but not fully realized, and they still have a lot of learning to do. So freeing uh, folks that we that we talk to when we train from this um, from this. Um, Binary sort of begins to break down the wall to have people sort of think about accepting their internalized racism. Everyone has internalized racism. We need to learn about this in service of kids. Yeah. Right? That's the North Star, right? right. Not just, I mean, there's a moral imperative, certainly,
0: right, to be had beyond anything that's explicitly educational. But in this location, right, in this line of work, Um, the only thing that gives it any meaning and any purpose is that we work with young people and that what we do drastically impacts their lives, right? And so from that vantage point, we don't have the luxury of Remaining quote unquote race neutral, if there ever was a thing, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, or saying that we don't see color, any of that stuff, right? Or just saying we're not racist, right? To your larger point, but to be actively anti-racist in our orientation.
1: Yeah, right? and I like the word that you used just 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 a few sentences ago about about impact on on students, mm-hmm. because that's the second construct that we talk about is focusing in on impact, not intent. Because mm-hmm. where we often get the white defensiveness and the guilt and the shame is about addressing an issue of racism and then white people going right to intent. You know, I didn't mean it. I am a good non-racist. I have black friends. I don't see color. The, the race blindness has its own problems in and of itself. Race blindness is a great aspiration. I think that's a laudable and noble aspiration to be race blind, you know, to be a colorblind, race blind. That, that's where we aspire to be, but that's not how people live currently. Mm. So until people stop experiencing the U.S. As, in racialized ways, we must continue to talk about race and racism. I, want, I hope we aspire to get there where we don't have to talk about race in terms of outcomes. But, but in terms of the second construct, we need to focus more on impact, looking at how students are performing in schools, how they're performing in classrooms, what are their outcomes. And if they're, when I say it, what we say is if there's smoke, there's fire. If there's a racialized disparity, there's bias somewhere in the system that we actually have the power to do something about. So intent is off the table. You know, we're all on a racial racial identity development continuum and learning about our racism. So intent is off the table. We, we mean well. Now let's focus on impact in terms of how our actions our internalized racism is impacting students. And to the federal government's
0: credit, right, like some of the guidance that has been offered forth is this idea of the spirit impact, particularly when you look at racialized subgroups, right? So that we're not looking at, when we look at the data, you know, the intention. Right. We're looking at is there are there racial disparities. Right. And given the complex history of race and racism, um, we have to look at not whether you you meant it, not whether it was on accident. But if there are racialized disparities between the various subgroups, that's cause enough for us to enact an intervention. Um, Many of you all who are listeners know that uh, Creed uh, put out a document last year called Erasing Inequities, which looked at. Um, All one million and a half students in North Carolina uh, disaggregated them all by race, but looked at them across several different uh, access and uh, outcome indicators, educational access and outcome indicators to determine whether there were disparities in opportunity ultimately. And what we found is predictably, right, it doesn't matter what you're talking about, whether it's access to teachers, novice teachers, as you were saying, teacher turnover. Who gets enrolled in what classes, suspension, uh, AP and IG, right, who gets identified as gifted or as EC, that across the continuum, you're going to see disparate racial outcomes. And if that that's cause enough for us to say, you know, there's there's a problem here. And that's ultimately what racism is. Right. Uh, the most pernicious and impactful kind, um, going back to impact, is the kind that this shows up, whether we mean it or not. Um, So we're getting ready to come up on a break here in a moment. But I wanted you just to I want to acknowledge that in Tracy's uh, book, uh, he has a foreword written by uh, someone who's kind of considered the OG. Right. in a lot of respects of this racial equity work. And that is uh, Glenn E. Singleton. Um, Many of you all know him as being the author of Critical Conversations, uh, Him along with Curtis Linton. And uh, he says this uh, as part of the foreword. He says the construction of race is acknowledged, documented, studied and understood. The evidence and impact. There we go again, are irrefutable. Overcoming the inability and or lack of will to name, talk about and examine racism in every aspect of our social order and system of schooling. Born of practice and sophisticated in race must be a function of transformed belief, conscious intent and explicit action. May this book be a useful contribution to your practice of each. How big of a deal was that to get the blessing from uh, Glenn Singleton and talk about just really briefly, like your relationship with Glenn?
1: Glenn has been. I first met. Glenn. I didn't meet him actually. I was first in the audience when he was working with the school districts. I was a principal um, intern in Chapel Hill during my time at UNC uh, Chapel Hill to get my master's back in 2005 and 2006. And I was at Smith Middle School, and he was working with Chapel Hill, City, Carborough City, Carboro City Schools. Mm-hmm. And he was. I don't. I forget how long his contract was with them, but I was at one of his professional developments, and I was. I admired the way he navigated racism in a very direct way with a smile. He was a black man. There are very few black men in the district, um, but he was up on stage in front of a predominantly white audience. He was speaking very frankly and very openly about the impacts of racism in schools, the responsibility of teachers and, and leaders to address that and white racism. And that was in 2005. And, you know, I was all of 25 years old. But I was like, you know what, this guy, I am without fear. Um, this guy is someone that I want to be able to speak. Like I didn't have my voice. Then I didn't have the terminology. I didn't have the, the sort of the, um, the ability yet to be on stage in front of people to do what he did, but I knew I wanted to impact the way in which he did. So just so happened was we crossed paths a few more times in other professional development um, opportunities uh, at other conferences. And I slowly made it out of, like Glenn, you know, I met you back here, you know, try, I was sort of a Glenn groupie of my, might I say at, at, at different conferences. And so we did get a chance to work together when I was at Harvard in my doctoral program. We brought him in for our cohort of 25 students. And that's the time where I really got to sit down and have a one-on-one. He gave me a lot of advice about a cultivate voice, how to keep in the fight, and how to exercise self-care, which is the most important part of doing this work, um, and so we had opportunity on a few other occasions to interface. And when I started writing this book, I asked a lot of his advice about how to move forward with a white co-author. Because his co-author of his first edition of Courageous Conversations is white. Yeah, and he had a lot of great advice for me. And so when I reached out to him to write the foreword for the book, um, it didn't take a lot of convincing because he knew I was serious. And I'd been interfacing with him over the years. And I really respect his work. And I see his work, as Courageous con- Conversations, as a precursor. To getting into our work because right. his is a construct and the consciousness awareness raising our book is then the do in schools
0: and so we're going to get right ahead to a break but i want to pick up there once we return is you know what does the work look like because there are as, as you mentioned dimensions and sort of stages and we often get stuck in kind of that uh, initial awareness or consciousness raising piece but i want to know uh, how do we elevate and uh, extend ourselves into that next phase so we'll be right back in a moment after this break on the Margins podcast is brought to you by the Center for Racial Equity in Education, or CREED, an organization dedicated to closing racialized opportunity gaps for students of color within the P-20 education system in North Carolina. This podcast is part of our three spheres of work that includes research, engagement, and implementation. If you want to learn more about what we do or get involved, please visit creed-nc.org or follow us on Twitter at The OTM podcast. Now, back to the episode in progress. So we're back with Dr. Tracy Benson, um, again, talking more about uh, his work, his uh, recent book, Unconscious Bias in Schools, a Developmental Approach to Exploring Race and Racism. And furthermore, just talking about how race, the intersections of race and education. Um, uh, Tracy, before we went to the break, you were talking a little bit about your relationship with uh, Glenn Singleton um, and, you know, talking uh, about how, you know, you feel like your work picks up sort of where uh, Glenn's does a really good job of orientating folks uh, to this consciousness raising and, um, and, and awareness level. Uh, talk to us about the importance of, of you know, not, not uh, viewing this as a continuum, right? Because what happens is some folks say, uh, and I've experienced this, oh, I've already been in one of those workshops, you know, I already know, I've been to... <laughs> I've been through diversity training. I've been through DEI, and i And, you know, now they're woke and they have this consciousness. They they put on what we like to call it, create their equity glasses. And, you know, and the work doesn't that's not how this that's not how this operates. Right. This is a developmental, as you mentioned, developmental process. So let's talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, in, in again, I, re- I rely on Robin DeAngelo because she she talks about this very well in terms of white right, right fragility. It's this aspect of of um, you know, white racial ignorance is so widespread that um, in terms, especially in the area of, of, of race, and um, there's an assumption of we do race a certain way. If we read this book, or if we attend this workshop on a certain day, or if we get people of color in our social circle, then we are now woke, or we, we have a level of consciousness, then we can translate into like real liberatory action, which is simply not true. Um, because most white people, if you just scratch right below the surface, make very highly racialized decisions that you know, that can could contribute to the oppression. So, you know, typically when I interface with people, especially uh, the folks who really want to be in this work, and I do coach diversity, equity, inclusion coaches, who, white coaches who coach others. And my question is, um, you know, in these three areas, you know, are you really living in deliberation work that you're, you're teaching and, and, you're, and, you're, and you're talking about? And one, um, have you really uh, investigated how race has, has affected where you live, mm-hmm. you know? Do you live in a place where you feel like you're promoting racial equity? Do you live in an enclave where you have white people and you live race when you come to work? Has it affected where you work? Do you hire on people of color for their knowledge rather than hire them on expecting them to then assimilate into your vision of what racial equity is? And there's a lot of of people of color who work with these white-based racial equity organizations who are intensely frustrated because they have to buy into a paradigm, a white racial paradigm to racial equity work that is in. Direct disconnect with their lives and the way they they see racial racial um, uh, racial um, progress, and then the last thing is, is I think it's possibly one that's most powerful. If, if the people do have kids, how does race affect where you send your kids to school? Because you know, if you're in you do race and uh, racial equity in education, you know explicitly what schools are like. And what schools you can't, you, what schools have resources, what schools don't. So are you sending your child to a school and fighting the fight at that school? Are you defaulting and say, well, I have privilege and I'm going to send them to a more highly well-resourced school, but then go to work and then preach doctrine about how folks need to do things differently. And so in these three areas, not to say people need to make changes in those three areas, but we must realize that, one, while we are in the, on the realm of, of um, talking about racial equity, um in our, in our work and you know, in our work time, we also need to live it in terms of understanding how we promote oppression. And so, you know, in terms of the, these three areas about where you live, where you send a child to school and where you work, are you living this in these three realms are a place that we have to understand about how, where are, how far our comfort, where our comfort zone lies? Are we just only willing to live this at work? From nine to five, and then go home to our white racial enclave. Mm-hmm. Are we thinking about this in the broader sense of living what we preach in doctrine in terms of our our environment and in our organization? And I find that the biggest barrier that I find is um, again that that aspect of white racial comfort that that um, that uh, Robin D'Angelo talks about, and in our book, chapter um, five, the title is "Whose Comfort Are We Prioritizing." Ooh. Um, because we often come into this work realizing that it's an in, it's inherently emotional work. Yeah, that emotions are very much tied to how we think about race and racism, because there's a certain level of consciousness among everyone who lives in the United States of the, the, the depth of racism and how difficult it is a problem to solve. Whether you choose to be willfully ignorant, mm-hmm. angry about it, guilty, shameful, but there's a fear of opening Pandora's box, and then what is it then going to lead to? So we're going to open it and we're going to process feelings, and feelings is not what we really do at work, <laughs> right? We, we we Especially in schools, we, we have initiatives, we have numbers, we have specific ways in which we you know, implement curriculum and pedagogy. We don't deal with emotions around racism. And that's where 50% of the, the conversation takes place in this area of emotion and getting people past the point of guilt, shame, to the point of belief and then participation and actually looking at data and seeing data as a source to then investigate racial bias, because we often go to the default of explaining away. So that your report that you all put out, every one of the aspects that you talk about in terms of access to AP classes, GPA, graduation rate, for every one of those data points, there is a deficit-laden explanation about why Black and Brown communities perform this way. Either they're come, you know, the the popular ones are single single-family homes, or maybe they're poor, or parents don't value education. We need more parent involvement in school. So these are all the deficit-laden in language that we're comfortable with. We're not comfortable with saying that we have a graduation rate among black males that lags behind white males by X percentage. Where in our system our, is our system disadvantaging black boys intentionally hmm. so that they do not graduate at the same rate? That's where the key is. And until we get to that point I've seen every data point that Creed reports about as a way to investigate and undo where it is in the system then we can't really say that we are leading in educating for liberation. And so what you're now pivoting toward
0: is, you know, the sort of educational system that we want to build, which is, uh, I think, a struggle, you know, frankly, because, you know, the work that we do is we do at CREED, we do research, we do uh, engagement around these issues, but then we do implementation work, which puts us in schools, puts us in the districts, and oftentimes finds us doing professional development, professional learning, and often technical assistance. And you know, my personal observation is that we have yet to imagine a world where um, deficit explanations are not normalized. In other words, we can't imagine a future where racial equity actually exists. We can't see it. A world where uh, students of color, Black, Latinx, Native, Southeast Asian students are able to perform consistently at high levels They're able to experience education in a way that is affirming to their identities, both uh, from a a practice standpoint, from a curricular standpoint, um, you know, where a workforce is expected and held, I hate to use this term, accountable to uh, knowing, right, the different cultural linguistic needs of the learners, but also adhering to those in a way that pulls on those, that teaches to and through culture, like, uh, you know, Geneva Gay says, Uh, and and that lack of imagination, um, causes us to not have emancipatory or liberatory, uh, pedagogies, right? Everything, even when we work in these schools, we say, well, you know, I, I, how could I be racist when I work at a school like this? I chose to work at a title one school or I love these kids. I love these babies. And yet underneath the surface, the underbelly of that is very, uh, man, just it's, 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 there's a subtext. To that, <laughs> uh, that that almost comes across as uh, philanthropic or, or or toxic, toxically charitable, uh, <laughs> um, and so I, I'm more interested at in this venture of helping to shift mindsets of educators of like, no, like we're the kids don't you know by and large it's not the kids that are broken, right? It is the system, and so how do we adopt orientations that then be about become about fixing the system? in liberating young people. But that seems like a harder piece, particularly as we comb through the way that our systems operate. And all systems thinkers, whether we're talking about folks who are in education or not, will tell you, and we say this in our workshops, every system is designed to achieve whatever it's achieving. right? So if it's successful and all kids are achieving, that's part of the system design. If it's not, in particular, historically marginalized subgroups are, that that's being reproduced, well, then it's, it's in the system design. So how do we be honest about what's happening in our systems, how they're constructed? And then furthermore, not just talk about how we know everybody has bias, but take the next step going through and dismantling those pieces. That seems like the harder charge at this juncture of sort of racial equity work. And so um, I know you you've uh, we've talked a little bit about what some of the obstacles are to that. But what do you see as some of the obstacles to getting to that next lever to that next gear?
1: Uh, I th- Thank you. For, I mean, first, you can bring in uh, James Ford to skew you to the game on sort of the, how all the different, you know, uh, the systems work to sort of replicate the social order, because that's what it is. I mean, we, got, we can't forget we live in a capitalist society right. that has historically subjugated people of color. Mm-hmm. And so schools are just a, a cog in the wheel or in the machine replicating that, you know, because we were never, one, meant to be free. That was never the intent initially. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, we're never meant to be educated. And then even more so, we were never meant to run this country because that's scary to white folks, right? We are always going to be a dangerous and scary people until we reconcile and wrestle with that about the foundations of empowered black people that um, we can't then discuss that what then empowerment then does look like. You know, so there's some foundational issues we need to talk about about the criminalization of, of black populations, the sort of the, the deficit thinking in terms of intelligence the inability to see black folks in, in as a whole, as leaders to be able to self-govern and not be a threat to white society. And so why do you think in the Brown versus Board decision of 1954 that they didn't choose to then equally fund black schools and communities? That's that was the ask. That was the only ask. That's true. But white society is afraid of black empowerment. And there are a lot of um uh, documentaries out, out there about sort of the, the histi- history of white society breaking apart black empowerment and black communities and black economic progress. There's a great um, uh, film. Uh, it's called Wil- 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 Wilmington Burning. I saw Wilmington on Fire. Wilmington on Fire. Yes, there you go. Yes. There you go. And that is the epitome of what has happened across the United States when blacks do become empowered because it's a threat to white society. And so that's the foundation of, do we really want black people to be educated enough to liberate themselves? That's a threat to the privilege that white folks have. And I understand that in terms of the, the empathy towards, especially white males who have no way to tether themselves to oppression. They don't even have the construct of what that means. White women, maybe because they're women and they realize how sexism works, right, but white women religion. has no white men have no frame of reference. So they truly believe it's a meritocracy that if it was good and easy for me, it should be good and easy for you. And so that's why I understand the typical response is anger. Anger at black and brown people for not pulling themselves up because they have no frame of reference, because this society was made by them for them. And so um, in terms of the in terms of moving forward, again, we have to put Our our sort of current where we are currently in, in the broader context of our history, you know, we're in a very short amount of time from legalized oppression, you know, hundreds of years of legalized oppression can't be solved in 55 years. And also, we don't have an equal and opposite reaction quite yet. You know, there's been an action to subjugate black and brown people. There has not been an equal and opposite reaction. There hasn't been the, the 20 acres in a mule. That's the equal and opposite reaction that we're still waiting for. And, you know, the the, uh, the interest on that is building. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the,
0: the 40 acres, uh, in, you you go, know, 40 shout acres. out to uh, uh, Sandy Darity um, at Duke. And his work on reparations and really applying rigor, economic rigor, uh, to calculating what that translates uh, to today for African-Americans. But right, I mean, like that was a real promise, right? That we left, we was left unfulfilled. And we see it borne out in every aspect of society. Right. It's not a myth. Right.
1: right. It's, it's, a, it's a real debt that is owed. And that could have been something if it was intended to actually liberate black and brown people. So that the the um, the interest on that is growing. And it's, 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 it's astronomical at this point what 40 acres in a mule looks like in 2020. And so, um, reconciling with, we have a long history of oppression. And I think the fu- fundamental, I think, foundation is, is what, what, what I argue and I talk about is we don't need domestic missionaries. Like you talk about the charity work from white society to help black and brown communities. What we need is for the white society to stop oppressing. We're going to be all right. Stop putting us in substandard schools. Stop red lighting us from, from, from living in affordable housing. Stop gentrifying cities and pushing us out. Stop g- leaving us unemployed and not hiring people, hiring us to work in, in companies and in organizations where we are equally, if not more qualified than our counterparts. And even when we get in, mm-hmm. stop uh, um, uh, rating us and reviewing us as if we are less than, and we have to do twice as much to be rated as a mediocre white male. Stop letting our black women die at higher rates than white women in childbirth. Now, these are all areas of our society that we consistently have have really deep uh, racial barriers for people of color. So we don't need domestic, domestic missionaries opening up charter schools and education-based organizations and coming in to help black populations to solve the problem that white society is causing. We need to figure out how to then get to the point where whites stop oppressing. That's step one. How do we stop oppressing black and brown people and then we get to a playing field? Well, then. All right. Now, what does it look like for an equal and opposite response to be bring black and black, black and brown folks up back to the place where white folks started hundreds of years ago?
0: Yeah. You know, um, I think about this concept of freedom from and freedom to. Right. And so a lot of what we uh are talking about when we think about freedom and emancipation. It's been freedom to. Oh, now you're free to. You're free to participate. You know, um, in 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 the economy. You're free to uh, to go to school uh, across racial lines and. Dip- but what are we free from? Right, right. Um, are we free from the continual and persistent uh, and dogged? Uh, oppression that just continues to manifest itself and in the thought of that right of really being given an equal opportunity is is an idea that is elusive and i should pause here to say like uh, you mentioned the charters i'm not personally principally against charters it's the orientation right again is is it is it rooted and grounded in a savior mentality uh and in, in, in many ways in the same form of fashion as our traditional publics are where you know it's as I mentioned, well, I work at this school because I want to help this population. You know what folks really need to be given is uh, is equity, and I mean that in both terms, right? They need they <laughs> they need to be able to to, to draw on you know uh, the appreciated value of those things, to have part ownership, right? But in addition to that, like have their needs serviced, right? Just just equalize the opportunity, respect the fact that I have been socially located in such a way that it places me. I'm not um, there is not a gap a gap in achievement here, right? Uh, I have been denied of opportunity. There's a gap in opportunity or as uh, Gloria Latson billings likes to say, there's, there's an educational debt, right, that needs to be paid here. I mean, pay the debt off, right, and then, and, and then treat me as I ought to be treated. Give me what's necessary to allow me to not just survive, but to thrive, right? And that seems like, for whatever reason, a bold or a radical ask that has yet gone unfulfilled. And so that kind of leads me to, like, my next question, which is, like, bro, what do we do? Right. Like how do we how do we get there? Right. Because we've we've you know, we've talked about and the kind of argument may, may and you probably heard it is, you know, this is a lot of victimization. Right. Being ha- and what I hear are, are people continuing to live in the past, complaining about how they've been so uh, put upon. And, and maybe that's the problem. Maybe it's that, you know, uh, we have such a deficit mentality that we have have uh, been victimized by learned helplessness. You know, <laughs> so 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 pick up your bootstraps in this merit meritocracy uh, and, and do for self, right? Whether we or not we agree with that, what is the pathway forward? Knowing that that is in fact the mentality of many folk who, uh, you know, stand in positions and um, you know to potentially inhibit or prohibit or, or, or allow us. Uh, to get what we need for our for our young people, so how do we do it, man? How do how do we get there?
1: Yeah, and I mean, I'm and I'm not espousing. I don't have the way. If I had the way, you know, I'd be at the front, sort of leading, you know, straight up, you know, Nelson Mandela style. I well, you're, not gonna, you're not going to tell us that the way is in the book. You know? <laughs> just just go get the book.
0: The way is in the book, <laughs> yeah. but I'm not going to tell you because you got to so, back.
1: Yeah, I'm going to tell uh, tell two two ways in schools, like put, putting one foot in front of the other, because that's all we can do. You know, as individual people, and individual people taking action creates a collective movement, right? Yeah. Also, it always takes the individual. You know, so we have to remember that we have tremendous power in when we act and when we share knowledge results each one teach one. And I understand that mentality in which you're talking about about um, we need to need to sort of get away from this mentality, learn the system in which we live in, and then navigate the way in order to assimilate into it. And some folks do that, you know, and I'm not and I'm not uh, one to say that that is not the right way. If folks need to assimilate and buy into the sort of white racial framing in the in the white supremacist construct and navigate that as a person of color, you know, and that's the way, that's the way. However, I'm more interested in the liberation of a people. Um, and if you need to depart from a people and be an individual, that's that's your way. But my way is the liberation of a people. And if we're going to liberate a people, we need to have a collective mentality about how then to move forward in concert with our white brothers and sisters. Because we can not start the revolution tomorrow. We only represent 13% of the, of the population. Right. <laughs> right. And we ain't going nowhere, you know. <laughs> short-lived revolt. <laughs> <laughs> right, if it's anything that's directly confrontational, so we have to live in concert, and we sh- and we should, and for humanitarian purposes. But and two examples in schools, um, and any teacher or leader who's listening to this podcast now can enact this next week, can act it, enact it tomorrow. Um, one way in in terms of um, uh, approaching it in a classroom. So the classroom, the classroom teacher, and having students who are from different racial backgrounds in the classroom. We know that racism lives there. If we're not attending to it, racism is filling that space. Point in case, I teach a course called Supervision of Instruction. And one of the activities I have my students do is go in to a classroom and observe it through a race and gender lens only. All right, You choose what you're going to look for, but you must look for, look for differences in race and gender. And typically what my students pick is, is um, student participation. How do stu- What's the student participation patterns in a racially diverse classroom? What does it look like? And so this is one of the slides I, I showed during my book talk is um, I'd also do side-by-sides with, side with my students in. they're learning how to do observations. So I go to their school, I sit side-by-side with people who are in, intending to be administrators and we sort of do the same observation together. And in this one particular observation, and by the way, 95% of my students find a race and gender difference in the classroom in terms of the way teachers, regardless of race, treat their students. Wow. Um, and then this one particular observation, um, we, I, I label students not by their name but by their race and gender. I drew out the classroom and this is what I recommend, uh, teachers to do. Go observe a fellow teacher or in your own classroom, have someone observe you for these patterns is to, um, uh, observe for racial bad. So draw out the classroom and I, I label the desks. By the race and gender, so, so white white female, white male, black female, Latino female. So I labeled the, the room by, by race and gender, no names. And then what I did is I simply marked hash marks next to students' names whoever participated during direct instruction, whether the students raised their hand, whether they were called on a cold call, or whether they called out without, you know, without raising their hand to answer a question. And the one observation that I talk about, and this is endemic, you know, you can find this in any classroom, you get in elementary school, middle school, high school, college classrooms, graduate classrooms. This is a common pattern that we find you know, almost universally, is that in the classroom, uh, that this particular observation, I noticed that white males were giving privilege to call out at will without being re- redirected. So the teacher would ask the question, what's two plus, plus two in a white boy? One of the white males would yell out four. And the teacher, good job, and then move on. But what, they, what I then notice is that when these two females, called one black female and one Latino female, did the same thing the white, te- white female males were doing, the teacher would redirect them. So they would say, what's three plus three? The, the, the Latino female would say six. Oh, sorry. You know, please, please raise your hand next oh, time. Wow. The three direction. Wow. And then in terms of raising hand, and this is, this is amazing, and also it probably has to do with math, is that the teacher was like 10 times more likely to call on a boy especially a white male, when their hand was raised to answer a question. I saw females raise their hand and then put it down when they weren't called on. Until eventually they stopped raising their hands across the board. And so this is a pattern that goes on in most classrooms without us ever knowing. And I know this, one, from observation. So I've been teaching this class for three years. And also when I started observing my own college classroom, I am victim of the same thing because there's so much um, indoctrination about who has privilege through elementary, middle, and high school, that when they get to college classrooms, that I find that white males just simply take up more space, have more talk time, Mm -hmm. and that folks who are not white males just yield to that because we've been conditioned that way. That's the dominant society, right? So it reproduces itself. Right. And so if you are a teacher at any grade level, middle school, high school, elementary school, college, you can start by noticing just the interactions you have and how we um, teach students their value in the classroom by the way in which we interact with them. And then purposefully create a strategy to mitigate that. And so I, when, in an observation that I had a long time ago, um, I, was, I, I had someone observe me for this pattern and I was calling on boys way more. And it was an all black classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, boys like way more than, than girls. Mm-hmm. And so what I, ha- what I made a, a strategy, what, what I've been practicing ever since then Ever since that time, this is when I was an elementary school teacher, as I always go boy, girl, boy, girl, all the time. Even when I'm in a large auditorium giving a talk in front of a lot of people and taking people to share out, I still go male, female, male, female. And that's my strategy.
0: That just that just that mental screen, right? That you run your your actions through
1: all the time, and I, I I and I do that now because it's an unconscious bias I know I have, right. and so I remind myself and I write it on my note cards when I'm giving a talk: male, female, male, female. And I notice when folks get up and sort of cold call and and call out if it's a couple of males, I'm like, hold on, sir. Can I have such and such to yeah. make sure that I'm making it a more equitable space? And I also endure it in terms of race and gender because it be race because it become like second nature. So that's a classroom strategy. One, one foot in, F in order to chip away at the mountain of racial oppression in schools. And then the second way in terms of school-wide um, it is, is examining data for racialized patterns. Examine data for racialized patterns and then resist the deficit laid in explanation for why the pattern exists. Good. Point in case. Uh, this was a, a case I had just last semester. So I was at a school doing a side-by-side with an, another one of my students. And this was a, a, um, a, um, uh, a racially diverse school where, you know, white students represented 60% of the student population, but 40% were students of various different other racial backgrounds that weren't white. And I walked into the school. we were walking on our way to our observation. I passed by the, the student of the month board. And this was in the month of November. So I noticed August, September, October, and November, the students of the month were up on the board from fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. There was one student from each grade up on that board. So Mm -hmm. each month, there were four students. And I just happened to glance at it, and every student on that board was white. Wow. And since I had this racial lens, I'm like, what is going (laughs) on here? Like, how is it that you have a school where 40% of the students are students of color, but all the students of the month are white? That's a systemic issue with what's going on at school. Now I didn't go and talk to the principal myself. I, tr- I pointed it out to my student and she was like, Oh, I never saw that before. I was like, huh, cause it's so normalized. Yeah. Yeah. So she took it on herself. She's like, I'm going to talk with the principal and I'll come back and report to you later. And so she talked with the principal. And then in, when she came into the next class, she's like, yeah, I talked with the principal and she was, of course, the principal was very taken aback. She felt guilty. She felt shameful. Um, and so what then she decided to do is not investigate the system about how it happened. What she chose to do is in the month of December, assign all kids of color to be students in the month in December as, the, as a strategy to counteract that. So she missed a chance to really investigate the system about how it was producing these outcomes, which could then have long-term, uh, long-term effects in order to right the wrong, but she chose a technical response about just putting kids of color there. And so investigate systems of racial biases and then figure out how the system is then privileging some students and not privileging others. That's an amazing
0: story, both about the, you know, anecdotally how the system um, produces that. And we should be clear that like what we're saying is not that, oh, know it's deliberate intentional racism why you didn't have any kids of color up there. What we're saying is that's a symptom of what is likely a much deeper system problem. Right. 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 Um, And so the response to that is not just to do something that's symptomatic, right? Oh well, you know, just put some black kids, you know, for the month of December. Right. (laughs) It's to investigate further and deeper. Um, and so, you know, for the podcast listeners like uh, that, as well as many other strategies can be found um, as in uh, in the unconscious bias in schools, a uh, book that's been authored by Dr. Tracy Benson and Sarah Fairman, Fireman, um, Fireman mm-hmm. uh, f- forgive me. Um, we got a couple of minutes before we close out here. And uh, as is tradition on this program. Um, we like to leave with this notion uh, of radical imagination rooted and grounded in the idea that we don't just want to focus on what it is we want to destroy. We want to focus on what it is we want to build. Right. So embodying this uh, asset based frame, uh, we, we have talked at length about what is wrong. Um, but oftentimes we're so focused on, we got to get rid of this. We got to get rid of What is the society that we're trying to build? And, and, you know, I have to give credit by saying, you know, uh, you know, researchers and scholars like, you know, Henry Garreau and, and, uh, Peter McLaren, you know, those are the people who have inspired me to think in this way. Um, but when you close your eyes and we think about, uh, in about 30 seconds, what you want to build, uh, what does it look like? The radical imagination you have?
1: I mean, I'm inspired by kindergartners. That I hold race conversations with the kindergartners when I have the opportunity to, and they are so they haven't learned to be self-censored. They will say, and if you ask them a question about race, they will tell you because they not, they not have they have not been educated to be racially illiterate. Mm-hmm. They're open and honest, and so what what I would like is for adults, for us to build adults that are also racially illiterate that we could talk about race and liberation and our history of racial oppression in a way that's open and honest and that just something that we do in the everyday so that we can then collectively get to a point where we can invest together in, in liberation of, of, of all people.
0: Dr. Tracy Benson, thank you so much for coming on the program On The Marge and spending some time with me. Y'all make sure to go check out that book and to check out his work as well and keep up the fight.